What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today's guest is Eric Trexler. Eric is a natural pro bodybuilder, a prolific researcher. He just finished his PhD with more than 30 publications, which is a very respectable amount of research done and just literature that he's personally been um, in the works with and touched. Um, And he has a lot of coaching experience inside of bodybuilding, inside of strength training, so on and so forth. He's also one of the um, directors, I believe, or or a big piece of the um, content production over at Stronger by Science, which is Greg Knuckles' company, um, a really, really reputable source for good information for coaches and people just trying to build their physique, build their strength, so on and so forth, be in the gym for a longer period of time. Um, and I'm really excited to have him on the podcast. We talked about a lot of different things. We talked about natural bodybuilding. We talked about muscle maintenance. We talked about dieting. We talked about what it takes to get extremely lean. And we talked a lot about metabolic adaptation and all the caveats inside of that from the diet before the diet, the diet during the diet, the reverse diet versus a recovery diet versus refeeds and diet breaks. We covered quite a bit about metabolic adaptation and how to prevent it and how uh, people get sucked into it, I guess, essentially. Um, we also touched on a lot of other things with supplements and both of our past experiences with quote-unquote 12-week preps. We dove into a lot and I really enjoyed this conversation with him, especially because he is so well-versed in the actual literature behind what changes our body physically. So you guys are going to get a ton of information with this one. I'm really excited to have him on the show and for you guys to take note of this and listen to it. Make sure you have a pen and pencil because this guy brings a ton of knowledge to the table. Before we get started, guys, just make sure you do me one huge favor and help me grow this podcast so more people can listen, more people can hear about this, and more people can get better results from quality information because that really is the goal here. Do me this favor by taking a screenshot of the show right now, posting it on your Instagram story and tagging myself at Cody.BoomBoom and tag Eric Trexler Fitness on Instagram so we can see who's listening to the show. And we can make sure that you guys are enjoying this content. Um, And then last but not least, if you feel called to, if you enjoy the show, if it's helping you in any way, head over to iTunes. Leave us a five-star rating and review. It's always greatly appreciated, and I really do enjoy reading those reviews. All right, guys, without any further ado, let's get on to this amazing episode with the one and only Eric Trexler. All right, Eric, I am super excited to have you on the podcast, man, not only because I'm a big fan of your content. um, I'm excited that you're a part of Stronger by Science now because I'm a huge fan of their content. But also because I think you're going to be able to answer a lot of questions um, in a much more formal and professional way than uh, a lot of people can because you're really doing a lot of the research and you're in the kind of field doing these things. And there's so many questions around the topics we're going to be covering today. Um, But before we jump into that stuff, for those who do not know who you are, can you give us kind of like your story or just how you got into all this in the first place in a nutshell? Uh, Yeah, you you mentioned formal and professional. Ironically, Greg and I are in the process of starting a podcast, and Greg and I, Greg Knuckles, it Stronger by Science, and the only thing we promised each other was that we wouldn't try too hard. <laughs> so our podcast is very non-formal and non, it's not unprofessional, but it's non-professional. But anyway, I'll try to live up to the standard you've set. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I started lifting when I was 12 really liked it, never looked back, Um, you know, was an athlete in high school, studied exercise science in college, went to grad school, did a master's and a PhD in exercise related fields, Uh, did a whole bunch of research along the way, um, mostly on dietary supplements, weight loss, things of that nature. Um, 
basically whatever interested me, I tried to study as close to that as I could. I was really into intri- uh, re- I was really into dietary supplements. I was really into bodybuilding. And so anything that felt relevant to supplementation and bodybuilding or weight loss or muscle gain, I tried to study it as a graduate student. Um, And then during grad school, I actually became a pro natural bodybuilder along the way. Uh, I did some powerlifting too, but I kind of suck at it. (laughs) I was, I always joke with Greg, I was good at it in 2012 when I competed before all the strong people started doing powerlifting. If you've looked at the records since 2012, it's a, it's a different sport. Like I couldn't, I I couldn't do anything there. Um, But anyway, I finished my PhD uh, in 2018 and now I work with uh, stronger by science. So it's me, Greg Knuckles and Greg's wife, Lindsay, who shoulders a huge amount of the, of the workload. Um, But yeah, we, we try to put out content that content that's relatable. If you're trying to lose weight, get stronger, build muscle. I love it, man. So one question I have already, um, this was unplanned, but now that you, I guess I didn't realize that um, one of your passions getting into the education was the supplement side. Was there a lot of disappointment as you got into that? Because as we know, supplements play such a small role in the grand scheme of things. Um, And I can imagine like going into the science and hoping for these outstanding research results and then being let down could have been a possibility. Did that ever happen along the way? I mean, so my entry into the supplement world, I I will say this to your point, the more I study supplements, the fewer of them I use. (laughs) Um, But I didn't come into it with the completely naive notion. Like there's some people that you'll like, Hey, what, you know, what's your supplement drawer look like? And it's like 75 products and they're taking like an extract of pine tree bark. And they're like, well, this makes me taller. And like some people are just so into supplements that it's crazy. For me, like I came in uh, to graduate school and the things I've studied mostly are nitric oxide boosters, uh, caffeine, creatine, beta alanine, some of the, the more tried and true ingredients that actually seem to do something. Um, and so like my, my frame of, of reference when, I, when I'm thinking supplementation is not you know, is there some weird, obscure root extract that maybe might do a little thing? It's like, of the ones that we know are doing something decent, now it's about quantifying how well does it work, how much does it cost, and and how do I balance those two things? And more and more, like, I'm in the worst shape of my life, (laughs) because I've been doing a lot of, like, I'm the worst. I just make content all day, write articles all day. I was you know, super busy with my dissertation. So right now it's like, why would I be on a supplement? Like I'm like, my training program is try to train a few times a week if you can. So like at that point, it's like any slim effect of supplementation is it's a drop in the bucket, you know? But when you, when you have everything going on all cylinders, you're preparing for a competition in my case, something like that, that's a place where supplements have a role, you know? Yeah. So is there any supplements that you do recommend to everybody? I mean, even if something as simple as a multivitamin or fish oil, and then what are the ones that you actually start to push when somebody is going into prep or getting really dialed in for a photo shoot or so on and so forth? Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's anything I'd ever recommend to everybody. Um, and that's not restricted to supplements. <laughs> it's like yeah. human beings. I, I think um, individualization is important. 
Um, but when it comes to the things that are pretty good for most people, um, I've never seen any harm in taking a, a quality multivitamin product with, with a fat-containing meal. And that's just so that the fat from that meal helps with the absorption of uh, fat-soluble vitamins. Right. A multivitamin is a safe bet, especially if you don't have super diverse food intake. And the more dialogues I've studied over the years, working with clients, working with uh, research participants, people don't eat a wide variety of food. Like most people have like a few foods they like and they eat it and then they'll get tired of it. In a few weeks, they'll be on something else. Um, so there's not a lot of people who like are having like really healthful, diverse meals over the course of a week in my experience. Um, so a multivitamin is nice. Fish oil is nice. It's something that I use. You just have to be careful with um, fish oil is one of the supplements where it makes sense to actually pay for quality. Um, a lot of times you'll find that fish oil supplements, um, th there's peer reviewed literature showing that oxidation of the lipids within the, within the product um, can be problematic and can be quite prevalent. So you want to make sure that you're going with a company that you think is, is, is doing really high quality manufacturing and extraction processes and uh, in handling the product well all the way from inside the fish to the shelf of the store where you get it. Um, so fish oil is good. Creatine is, I just wrote a huge article on creatine on strongerbyscience.com. And the whole point of the article was to get into not the generic stuff. You know, does it increase strength and power? Yes. Can that help with lean mass? Yes. But with creatine, there's other things. There's um, emerging research showing that it might be fairly good for bone health, for brain health, for other aspects of the body that go beyond just, oh, I used to get 12 reps, now I get 14. Uh, but creatine, I think, for, for a lot of people, has, has a lot of good application. Protein, I don't really consider a supplement. I just consider whey protein to be a food source. Take it or leave it but it's pretty convenient. Beyond those, you start getting into very specialized supplement categories. Um, nitric oxide boosters, that's a pretty specific kind of person that, that's going to really get a tangible benefit from that. Um, beta alanine is in the same category. It's fine um, if you're a, a mid-distance runner. Um, it's very good, but there aren't that many of them uh, you know, as a percentage of the population. A power lifter, I don't think you're going to get much from it. A bodybuilder, maybe, but it depends what your training program looks like. So that, that's kind of the, the short list of stuff. Oh, and, and sometimes I take vitamin D3 because I don't go outside ever. <laughs> so what, what about, um, I'm curious about citrulline malate because I know in the muscle and strength pyramids, Eric kind of added it in, took it out, and that was one of those ones that was, seemed like it was dancing on a fine line over the years with research. Um, and it kind of blew up for a while, and then people started saying it's pointless. What are your thoughts on that? Have you looked into that at all? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it was one of the ingredients I studied in my dissertation study. Um, so I've got a, a couple projects that are kind of in the, the peer review process at the moment. Um, a few days ago, a meta-analysis that I wrote got accepted for publication, and that was on citrulline supplements. And I also touched on it on an article I wrote on the website a few weeks ago. But my take on citrulline malate is that 
citrulline-based supplements, particularly citrulline malate, seem to have a small but not negligible effect on strength and power outcomes. So looking at something like a high-intensity sprint under 30 seconds, looking at you know, a reps to fatigue test where you would generally fail in the eight to 12 range, kind of that, you know, hypertrophy into more of a muscle endurance type repetition range, depending on how much you believe in the old school charts on that. But um, I think citrulline malate, the the way I put it in the article, even before the meta-analysis got published was, I think the effect is small, um, but I also think it's there. And the, the meta-analysis pretty much uh, was in line with that. You know, it's statistically significant, but, you know, it's, it's, it's more of an effect size that you would associate with something like caffeine for resistance training or beta-alanine. It's not the next creatine, and it's not going to be. Got it. So it's more one of those things, if you're really dialed in and you have the extra money to kind of spend and just blow on supplements, you might as well throw it in there. Yeah. And, and the thing about citrulline malate is I, it's one of the few that I use sometimes when I'm kind of really um, increasing my, my training focus and intensity. Um, you know, if you're doing a powerlifting, bodybuilding type uh, exercise program, especially if your goal is more hypertrophy oriented, um, I think hypertrophy more so than the really low rep strength stuff. I think there's a, I think there's utility to it and it's quite, it's, it's not the cheapest thing out there, but it's pretty inexpensive. You can get it for about 25 cents a serving. So, you know, for an eight gram pre-workout serving, you know, you drop a quarter, that's not too bad. Um, you know, whereas a a lot of other supplements, especially when you get into the multi-ingredient pre-workout blends, you're talking, I haven't bought one in a million years, but they used to be a dollar or two a serving something like that. Yeah. And you know, it always blows me away that one of the most researched and studied and proven supplements that you can possibly buy, creatine monohydrate is one of the cheapest things on the market. Oh yeah. Creatine is is very, very cheap. Citrulline malate's very cheap uh, and caffeine's very cheap. So, um, you know, with with the the kind of pre-workout blends out there, you can really focus that in on the few key ingredients and get a lot of bang for your buck that way. Yeah. So, so since we're on the topic of supplements and we're talking about research and the literature, um, this is kind of a selfish question before we get into the metabolic adaptation focus of the podcast. I'm just curious over the years, over your experience in bodybuilding, in the labs, doing research or just being a part of the research or even just reviewing the research, but just over the years, is there anything that comes to mind that has been the most uh, groundbreaking or like paradigm shattering thing that you've come across, something that really changed the way you thought about things? So w- one that that I read, like the, that someone else had done or one that I had contributed that I'm like most proud of? Let's go with both. I mean, I was thinking of uh, something that you've personally done or been most proud of, but let's just, let's go with both. Okay. Um, man, that's tough. Um. I'm trying to think of what exactly I did. We, we did a lot. So my, my graduate school career was a blur. I mean, we, we, we kind of hit the ground running and did a lot of work during that time. Uh, so when you start looking back and being like, oh, yeah, that was a lot of projects. Um, one that I thought was really cool was uh, we did one on fat-free mass index in college football players. Um, that I, I think 
I think people, it's not the, so are you familiar with fat-free mass index? Yeah. So, you know, for the longest time, it was like, I, I think the common conception was if you're above 25, you're on steroids, you know? <laughs> um, and that didn't seem right. Uh, and in, to, to, to be fair, the, the paper that that conclusion was based on didn't necessarily say that. Um, what it did say was like, you know, if you've been training for at least a few years and you're also pretty lean, you're probably not above 25. And that's still pretty true. Uh, but the, the, the project we did on fat-free mass index was in college football players, really big sample. Um, and, and we found, yeah, especially if you're not particularly lean, it's not very atypical to, be, to get above 25. Um, if you're, you know, you're genetically predisposed to, to muscle gain and you're training hard and supervised and you have good nutrition services and you're comfortable being with, you know, having a little more body fat, it's not very atypical to get into the high 20s and even in some cases into the low 30s. Um, and now we have sumo wrestler data from way back in the day, not mine, but somebody else's where, I mean, I'm pretty sure they were pushing 40, uh, getting pretty close to 40 for their fat-free mass index. The only problem is they're like, you know, I don't even know what the body fat percentage of a sumo wrestler would be. It's high. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not where you want to spend your off-season. Um, but yeah, I think that was one of the ones I really liked. And all the stuff we did with bodybuilders, you know, we, we did a few, uh, a couple or a few case studies um, in single uh, athletes getting ready for a bodybuilding or a physique competition. And then we did a pilot study with about 15 uh, in a little group of physique athletes after a competition. And so for me, uh, contributing to the bodybuilding literature meant a lot to me because it's, uh, I really like bodybuilding and I, I thought it was really, really cool that we could allow our, our research skill set to actually kind of merge with, with the interest in bodybuilding and, and do something productive. Um, in terms of work that I've seen that has been really incredible, um, there's people out there doing really nice stuff in our area. Um, the more I got into research, the more I became interested in statistics and methodology. And Andrew Vygotsky does incredible, incredible work in that area. Uh, James Krieger or Krieger, I don't know how he says it. Probably Krieger. Um, do you know? I have no idea, but I do believe it's Krieger. In fact, funny fact, he lives really close to me. I actually just found out that he lives in Isqual, which is really close to where I'm at. Um, and we've been going back and forth via email to get him on the show. Um, but I'm pretty sure it's Krieger, so I should probably figure that out before. So th they do a lot of stuff that I'm like, man, those stats are really good. And that gets me excited and just about nobody else. That's just kind of a thing that I like. When it comes to the, the physiology, one of the papers that jumps out just because I was just looking at it was uh, by McLean. Uh, the, uh, it's about basically um, physiological adaptations that predispose us to weight regain after we've lost weight. And uh, it's a long review paper. It's thorough. Um, and along, along with that, I'd say um, a lot of the work by Rosenbaum and Rudy uh, Liebel over at Columbia, they've done some really cool research on people that have lost a lot of weight trying to figure out how to 
what happens when we lose weight and how do we help people maintain that weight loss? Um, and, and man, some of the stuff is so thorough. So they'll look at like energy expenditure during a cycling test before and after they've lost weight. And they would even think to the level of detail of like, well, wait a minute, their legs weigh less. So they might spend less energy cycling because the legs pushing the pedals actually have a little bit less mass. And they would take, they, they would have the foresight to think about that plan for it and actually replace that weight with tiny little plates. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's some really intricate physiology work out there as well, but um, yeah, it's, it's hard to even narrow it down. You know, it's like the more you think about it, the more you're like, Oh yeah. And there's that one group. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of people out there doing really, really insightful, really well done work that I have a ton of respect for. I love it, man. I think it's so cool. And I, I love how much detail they're putting into this stuff because it allows us to eliminate biases and correlations and all these different things and really get real advice and real guidance of what we can do with our clients as practitioners. And I think it's, it's just awesome that you're able to do this in the bodybuilding realm because the reality is, is just research on bodybuilders is so limited and it's hard to take evidence and science done on sedentary individuals or elderly individuals and actually apply it to, to athletes and apply it to the people we work with in the bodybuilding space. So um, the way I want to start this talk on metabolic adaptation and reverse dieting is to kind of build some context um, and explanation uh, and, and just even start with a question that I get all the time. It's, a, it's kind of a funny question, uh, but I think there's so much misinformation on this subject. Uh, starvation mode. So I'm going to ask you, and this is how we're going to start this, is is starvation mode really a thing? Yeah. Um, so like uh, people that almost know what they're, they're talking about usually just say it depends and then they run away. <laughs> so I'm going to say it, it depends, but then I'll give you a little more than that. Good. Um, so what it depends on is what exactly a person means by starvation mode. And it could be, it could mean something very, um, very minor. So you've maybe heard of the thrifty gene hypothesis. And that was basically the idea that if you were, uh, blessed or cursed with genes that would allow you to store fat in times of feasting, then you'd be able to live off that fat if food availability ever got low. You know, so it's kind of a built-in survival mechanism that we might as well store fat while we've got it so we can use it later if we need it. Yeah. Um, now, the opposite of that also seems to be a real thing. And what, what I mean by that is, as we start losing weight, uh, our body has mechanisms built in so that our body can say, okay, well, clearly... Um, there's no energy available right now. You know, the acute energy availability is low. And clearly our fat storage is decreasing from where we're used to. It's probably advantageous if your body starts to use energy more efficiently in that context. I mean, that's just basic survival. Um, it's, it's almost like when your phone goes on low battery mode, right? Um, it's, it's like, okay, well, we normally do certain processes that take a certain amount of, of battery power, but let's cut out the unnecessary stuff for now because we've got more important problems. So that happens. You know, our, our body does respond to weight loss in a way that serves to protect our body weight because as far as our body is concerned, having energy available um, either as regular food intake or as fat is one of our most important things. I mean, it's kind of what we exist for, is to eat, reproduce, and try not to die each day. Um, 
So yeah, we have powerful mechanisms built in to help defend our body weight uh, when it comes to losing weight. So that's a thing. And, and it, if starvation mode means that as you start to lose weight and you do it very aggressively or you lose a, a large amount of weight in total, yeah, your, your energy expenditure goes down. And it goes down more than we could explain simply based on the fact that you weigh less now. It's not just the fact that you've lost tissue. So if that's what starvation mode means, then yeah, it's real. Now, I've seen people take that to a, a, an extreme and say that, well, the problem is it's impossible for me to lose weight now because my body is officially in starvation mode. And that's not a thing. Um, everyone has a number representing the calories that they need to have in order to facilitate weight loss. Um, now, for some people, it's higher. For some people, it's lower. But nobody on the planet right now is immune to starvation. If we put you on a desert island and there's no food sources there and we pick you up a few weeks later, no one's going to be fatter than when we drop them off. And no one's going to be the same weight either. You know, some people might lose a little more than others, but, but nobody's immune to starvation. So the idea that um, I, I've even heard some people say, I'm not losing weight because I'm not eating enough. That's not a thing either. So, so what is it that's actually causing this or making this occur? Um, is it just mistracking? People just actually aren't tracking their calories accurately enough. Is it a matter of neat and lifestyle factors significantly lowering energy expenditure? Um, is there hormonal issues going on or people experiencing diet fatigue? They just tried this for too long. Like what do you find is the most common reason for the average individual or a competitive athlete? Um, what is the most common reason for this phenomenon to be actually occurring? Yeah. So I, I I'm, I'm interpreting the question as basically if starvation mode as this super huge effect maybe isn't necessarily that big of an effect, why does it have the reputation of being so? Is yeah. that basically the, the... Yeah. So there's a lot to it. Um, metabolic rate does go down as we lose weight. And that's not an adaptation. That's just human tissues require energy to be viable. And if you have less tissues you need less energy, generally speaking. Right. So that's not even an adaptive process. That's just, you, there's less of you, so now you don't need as much energy. Now, there are also uh, hormonal changes and changes even down at the level of mitochondria in our cells uh, that also serve to further reduce energy expenditure. So not only do, does your energy expenditure go down because you've lost tissue, but even when we account for that, your energy expenditure is still a little lower than it should be. Um, a huge part of that is non-exercise activity. And I think a lot of people underestimate uh, the variability that we see in non-exercise activity. Um, there's a paper that says that for two people of the same body weight, purely based on the way they go about their day, we could see a variation of 2,000 calories a day in their non-exercise activity expenditure. Wow. It's an extreme case, but it, that's kind of the, the range we're working in. Um, there was, a, you know, when I was working on my dissertation study, I was taking, on, in some cases, over 30,000 steps a day. I could have eaten anything. <laughs> but it, but if, if, if I was used to living that way, 
And then I immediately switched to the way I spend my days now, which is behind this very desk, never moving. I'm going to be like, why am I fat now? And it's like, well, because I didn't change how I eat, but I just, I take like 27,000 less steps a day. Yeah. Um, so I think people fail to recognize, especially when weight loss attempts get really extreme, you turn into a statue. I mean, you're, you don't even maintain posture as well as you used to. You don't fidget the way you used to. When you realize that you haven't checked the mail in a couple of days, you say, if it's really important, somebody will call me. You know what I mean? It's just little things throughout the day that you don't really account for. We, and then there's the, the idea of adherence. There's the idea that even when we try to adhere, maybe sometimes our tracking is not accurate. Um, and people generally underestimate um, their portions rather than overestimate or their caloric intake. So I think when it comes to why does starvation mode seem like this huge, really, really insurmountable effect that stands in the way of weight loss, I think those things play a role. And there's so many different aspects that cumulatively, they do seem like quite a barrier to overcome. Um, another thing is, I think sometimes, but sometimes people aren't patient. And so it's like, well, I've been on a caloric deficit for eight hours and I haven't seen anything happen, you know? And it's like, well, it, it's going to take, we measure this in months, not minutes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and that's, that's fine. I'm not like bashing anybody. Like I'm the same way. Like I make a change and I'm like, well, how come I feel the same? It's like, cause you made that change 15 minutes ago, you know? So I, I'm not above this stuff. I do the same thing. And then I have to like, be like, oh yeah, give it some time. And another thing is that weight, um, if people, the, the, the ironic thing is the more people stress about it, the more that <laughs> if you're really stressed, a lot of times because of the hormones associated with stress, you can actually start to make, retain a little bit of fluid. Um, so if you're overtrained and you're uh, psychologically stressed out and your stress about your weight loss is causing you to train even more, even though you're overtrained, um, uh, most notably the cortisol response to that, but cortisol has downstream effects on other hormones and, uh, that, that relate to water storage, but you can retain more fluid. And so I remember helping a friend through a little weight loss phase and she was really freaking out about her weight loss because it wasn't budging. And I was like, the more you chill, you're going you're gonna to see that number change. And it's not because cortisol is making you fat. That, that's a, a lot of people think cortisol is causing them to maintain their fat or store fat. No, the, the cortisol is a fluid retention thing in this, in this scenario. And probably the most notable example of that is I was doing a contest prep in 2013 and I made a diet change and I didn't, I expected a little drop off in weight and it didn't happen. And, and I was like, okay, but you got to be patient. You know, like, like I said, like I, I fall into that trap too. And I'm like, just chill, but it didn't, it wasn't happening. And so I was training harder. Cause I was like, well, I'm not, I can't tweak the diet again. That's too soon. I'll just kind of really try to hit, you know, hit my training with intensity and the weight just wasn't coming off. And it was, it was days and days and days of, of zero fluctuation. And so I, I was like, either my body's completely broken and and this is it. And I need to like have somebody study my body to figure out why physics doesn't work anymore. Or 
I'm probably retaining a lot of fluid and I'm probably training too much and I'm probably too stressed. So I just kept my diet the way it was after this huge stall in weight loss and uh, just didn't go, didn't go near the gym for like five days. And this is like late in a prep when every workout counts. Like, you know how many leg days you have left before the show. And immediately the weight just fell off multiple pounds after, after this huge stall. And I was right back to where it should have been based on my kind of anticipated trajectory. So there's a lot, that was a long answer. There's a lot of stuff that goes into this. And the best way you can help yourself out is to be objective about it, have faith in the idea that mathematics and physics are always true and try not to stress out too much over it. Hey guys, I want to take a brief moment to remind you about the Boom Boom Elite, our membership site. This is literally the perfect place for you. The reason I know this is because you're listening to this podcast and anybody who listens to this podcast is a go-getter and an action taker. You are a person who is seeking information and education to better your body, better your performance, and finally transform your physique. I know this because people listening to this podcast really just seek results. And the one way to get better results is better training programs, but not only intelligently designed programs that actually build in progressions and avoid injuries along the way, but a place that's actually going to teach you how those programs are built. See, a lot of coaches and clients alike have insecurities about what they're putting on the piece of paper. Whether you're programming for yourself or you're programming for your clients, you probably have an insecurity or a lack of confidence in the programs you are creating. You probably question yourself, are these programs actually going to work? Am I going to get injured along the way? When a plateau happens because it's bound to happen, what do I do? How do I adjust? How do I move through this plateau and finally start seeing results again? See, the Boom Boom Elite is not only a place to give you the programs that avoid these things and actually give you results, have built-in progressions, and make sure that you're not getting injured along the way, but it's a place that's going to educate you on how those things are actually built into the programs. So now, you have longevity in your results. You can actually adhere to them because you know what the hell is going on behind the scenes, and you can start creating your own programs that actually work, and you have the confidence to know that they will work. So next time you put whatever you put on the piece of paper, you and your clients are confident and feel comfortable and actually believe in the system. Not to mention they're actually going to get results, which is the reason why we do this in the first place. So because you're listening to this podcast and because I know you're perfect for this, I wanted to take a second to just remind you about the membership site because this is the place that I spend every single day communicating with the environment, communicating with the community about training, about nutrition, about supplementation, about all the things that go inside of coaching. So if you want access to the Boom Boom Elite, click the link in the description below or go to boomboomperformance.com elite and sign up today. And without any further ado, let's get back onto this podcast. No, I love it. And, and feel free to have the most long and in-depth answers as possible because it's just more context. It's more value. So I love it. But um, what have you seen in the literature uh, or the research that you've done or been a part of or just studied inside of bodybuilding? And um, I think you mentioned a couple of these earlier just with bodybuilders and so on and so forth. So I would imagine they had something to do with this. But inside of a diet, and I mean relatively to – metabolic adaptation, hormonal adaptation, these buzzwords, these things that people are so worried about, like what, what should we actually be watching? What should we be doing? What should we be worrying about that is going to negatively impact us during a diet and cause metabolic adaptation? How do we avoid that? Yeah. I'm going to try to have an organized dance for this time. So you mentioned hormones. So 
based on the studies we've done and studies that other people have done, um, it's, you know, we've made only a small contribution to this whole body of literature. What we see with uh, contest prep, especially more extreme cases, um, trying to get super lean, we see testosterone and, uh, and in, in women, we see estrogen fall. We see cortisol go up. Um, and so right off the bat, we have concerns about trying to attenuate that because we want to make sure the balance of anabolic and catabolic hormones is as favorable as we can make it be. Um, and then we certainly don't want to have uh, reproductive side effects, you know, low libido, disruptive menstrual cycle, things of that nature. Um, leptin falls and leptin falls during this diet because we're losing fat. That's unavoidable. We could stop losing fat and the leptin would stop going down, but then we're not getting anywhere closer to our goal. It, it also relates to energy restriction and it's particularly notable when carbohydrate is restricted. Um, we see thyroid hormone go down. Um, there, there's a, a lot of hormonal adaptations and what we're concerned about is maintaining lean mass, maintaining reproductive function, trying to attenuate those changes in leptin because the, the changes in leptin affect thyroid hormone and both of those are going to affect our energy expenditure. The more leptin and thyroid hormone drop, which we see in that literature, uh, the more we would expect metabolic rate to, to drop. Um, so what can we do about that? When it comes to you know, our concern over testosterone and cortisol and the anabolic catabolic balance, certainly a smart training program with, uh, with a high protein diet. And when we're lean and we're losing weight in an energy deficit, protein needs are increased even more than normal. So um, Eric Helms has an excellent review on the subject and there's not a ton of research to go with, but he did as good as you could hope to do. And his conclusion was uh, 2.3 to 3.1 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass. Um, so that's not total body mass, it's your fat-free mass estimate. That's usually the, the working range to try to you know, fight back against the testosterone and, and cortisol issues and try to maintain as much lean mass as you can. Um, another thing you can do, um, if we really, really cut out fat intake, there's a few studies uh, quite a few studies showing that that has, um, it, it results in a reduction in sex hormones. So if we take men and just completely cut their fat intake really low, their testosterone will acutely drop. Same thing with women and estrogen. So keeping fat intake at a reasonable level, I mean, the, if you're going to lose weight, the calories have to come from somewhere. But I never like to let my fat go below 0.6 or 0.7 grams per kilogram of total body mass. Um, now, we also worry about performance issues because if, if you're training like crap the whole time you're in this weight loss program, eventually your adaptations are going to suffer. And what that means is poor strength, poor muscular endurance, and, and poor retention of, of muscle. And so carbohydrate plays a really important role in that. Um, so again, we're kind of at this tricky spot where if we, if we cut protein really low, probably going to lose muscle. If we cut fat really low, the endocrine effects aren't favorable. If we cut carbohydrate really low, the performance effects are, are, are pretty, pretty crappy, which also can affect our physique. 
So um, usually I kind of shoot for an ideal protein range, keep my fat at least above that minimum level and take in as many carbs as I can get away with. Um, there are strategies, you know, if we're training like crazy, doing a ton of cardio, there's something called the interference effect where it, it can start to affect with our ability to maintain strength and, and, and muscle tissue theoretically, especially if the amount of cardio is really high. There's also the chance that if we're training a ton of weight, training a ton of cardio, we're probably training more than we can handle. And that can kind of boost cortisol even higher. So I try to tell people, if you're worried about metabolic adaptation and the things that come with it, that influence the success of your diet, managing cortisol is part of that. And, and a good way to help with that is to really be thoughtful about how much cardio you really want to introduce to the mix. Now, directly looking at metabolic adaptation, the leptin issues and the energy expenditure issues, there's a couple strategies that there aren't a ton of evidence for, but the evidence is growing quite quickly. This is kind of more cutting edge stuff. And that would be refeeds and diet breaks. Um, the refeed literature is surprisingly not, there's not as much out there as you'd think. Um, one of the studies I really like was done by a friend of mine, Bill Campbell at University of South Florida. Um, he's a professor down there. They have an incredible lab where it's like, it's like the epicenter of where you can do bodybuilding research. I, I love Bill and the, the lab he set up there. And what they did was a two-day refeed strategy where the, the refeeds were put on two consecutive days. And based on the very limited evidence available, I think if you're going to try to use refeeds to have any effect at all on leptin um, and, and the other things that come with metabolic adaptation, I think the minimum you'd want to do is two days a week, and you probably want them to be consecutive days. Um, because if you look at the time course of how leptin reacts to being at weight maintenance, it takes some time to actually become elevated. Once you're in a deficit again, it drops pretty quickly. And for leptin to kind of accomplish its full spectrum of duties within the body, it kind of takes, it's not just leptin goes up and it goes to the leptin receptor and then everything happens. It's there's downstream effects that take time. There's kind of a cascade of effects where it's, it's almost like a domino effect. So I think you want to spend more time at maintenance if you can. So two, maybe even three days at maintenance. But the problem is the more, the longer your reef feed is, the more you're not actually dieting anymore. Right? Like yeah. if you're spending seven days at, ma at maintenance, you're not dieting anymore. So I think two or three days, if you're just doing refeeds in the middle of the week, is probably the sweet spot. Um, but you could take an even more extreme approach, which is diet breaks. And that's where you take a week or two. And uh, you, you, don't, you don't just like completely say, screw it, I'm not dieting anymore and go crazy. You go straight to the caloric intake that keeps you at your current body weight. So straight to your new maintenance level of caloric intake. You stay there for a week or two, and then you go back to a deficit. And uh, the idea there would be that when you're at maintenance, you, you, know, you might have favorable effects on leptin. It might preserve metabolic rate and protect it from, from you know, completely falling off with, with more extreme and continuous 
uh, weight loss practices. And there is some evidence to support that when we, when we take diet breaks, you know, one to two weeks in duration, it takes you twice as long to lose the weight because it's, it's usually, you know, two weeks on, two weeks off or, or some combination like that. So it takes twice as long to get there, but the effects on fat loss are a little more favorable and it seems to attenuate that, that kind of unexpected drop in metabolic rate. So, um, in a nutshell, what can we do? Make sure your macros are, are appropriate. Make sure your rate of weight loss is appropriate. No more than 0.5 to 1% of your body weight loss per week when you're in a deficit. Um, I forgot to mention that, but that is very important. Yeah. Going beyond that, you're likely to exacerbate the effects of metabolic adaptation because the, defi- the acute deficit is just too big. So macros correct, rate of weight loss correct. Don't go nuts with the cardio. You know, be be cautious about about how much you apply. Um, and if possible, if you have the, if you don't need to lose weight in like you know by next week and you have time, it's good to put in periods of weight maintenance um, to kind of just hold steady for a little bit and give your body a break from, from being in a deficit. So whether that's a refeed that takes two days or whether that's a break that takes two weeks. Um, the more you can get away with, the better within reason. I wrote down like five questions while you're talking. <laughs> so there's a lot that you, you fueled this conversation quite a bit with that. So the first one would be, uh, hypothetically speaking, say we're talking about a bodybuilder or just anybody looking to achieve their quote unquote best physique on a timeline. And the reason I said bodybuilding is because technically you have a deadline, right? You have a limited amount of time to reach this goal. Um, Hypothetically speaking, do you tend to favor multi-day refeeds, like a, even just one day for psychological benefit, but like two or three days more specifically, compared to full diet breaks being a week or more, seven to 10, seven to 14 days, just because the predictability of a refeed is a little bit easier than taking a full diet break, even though the diet break may have a greater positive net effect because it's longer? Um, they are... They're slightly different tools, um, but they do similar jobs. Um, so if, if I had all the time in the world and I had to pick one or the other, I would probably err on the side of using diet breaks and just saying, we're not going to worry about the refeeds. We're just going to take a deliberate diet break. Um, I, I think that would probably be the, the ideal. I think, I kind of view, I mean, everybody's different in terms of, you know, when I'm working with like a client, I get a feel for do how much do they hate having two weeks of the same caloric intake? Some, some people really do like to have a refeed in a few days that they're looking forward to. Um, so that's not a negligible thing. I mean, we're talking about like taking six months of a person's life, like how we're going to deal with their day-to-day food intake and, and habits and, you have to consider things like that, but they're both helpful. And like I said, it's like the more you can get away with the better. So if I have a client where we have all the time in the world and when they're on their deficit, the weight's just falling off of them. Yeah. I'm probably going to use refeeds and diet breaks, but I, if it's a a preparation situation, it's, it's more like as needed. Um, It's kind of like, you know, if, 
If you feel like a million bucks and you're not tired at all, you're recovering, you're performing really, really well, don't take a deload. <laughs> like, yeah. You don't need a deload right now. Don't take it. Like That's kind of the same way I view diet breaks. So I would say, generally speaking, if you can afford to use diet breaks, they're going to have a more meaningful impact than just throwing in a couple refeed days here and there. Um, but you only take them as you need them. Um, and... And, you know, you can kind of tell based on looking at weight trajectories and how somebody's feeling. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that they're both there. I think the, the real value in refeeds, um, again, aside from the psychological benefit and just kind of keeping things fresh, is sometimes people don't have the time to spare. And so if I can't get away with implementing diet breaks, that's where I can say, well, at the very least, I can put in a two-day refeed or if we're a little ahead of schedule, maybe even get away with three. Um, so I kind of view, re, I view refeeds and diet breaks on a spectrum. And it really just depends on what this person can get away with based on their timeline and what they need based on their feedback. Got it. Got it. Okay. So the next follow-up question to that is, um, I remember way back, this is just kind of the standard. I mean, I prepped for my physique show years ago. Um, but back then it was like, you just, you did 12 week preps. Like you actually just bought 12 week prep packages <laughs> from coaches, but that was kind of the standard. You did a 12 week uh, prep. Now there's like 20 week preps, 24 week preps, even longer preps, like year long preps. There's these crazy long preps. Um, there's kind of two sides of it. Like one, if you go too fast, you're doing this 12 week prep, you're crashing dieting too hard. You're probably going to suffer and, uh, create metabolic adaptations, maybe lose muscle mass. Um, it's not good for us. And then the other argument is, you know, if you go longer, yeah, that's slower. It's easier on your body, but you're still in a deficit for an extremely long period of time, which creates the same adaptation. So um, I'm just curious at your stance, like where do you stand on those two things and the length, um, the timeline of a cut uh, or a prep? Yeah. People in bodybuilding like to go to extremes. <laughs> so... I was with you when I first got interested in bodybuilding, there was no decision to be made. It was always a 12 week cut. <laughs> and if you were way over stage weight, then it was a really bad 12 weeks, but it was always 12 weeks. Um, and then people would start to say, well, you know, what if we did, uh, you know, 24 weeks or 30 weeks. And then all of a sudden it, I saw people that it looked like they were prepping for about a year. I mean, uh, you know, really taking their time. And it really, in my opinion, depends on where you are in your career. If you're a person that's early in your career, you're doing competitions to get more experience, to, you know, to figure out what works for you. Uh, but you know that you've got a lot of mass to gain in the future. You got to be really careful about spending too much of your time in a deficit. You know, you still got some building to do. So don't take an entire year out of your bodybuilding career to be in this like super tiny deficit and just forego any gains that, that could have been made in that time. So like it, it kind of depends, but I would say for most people, I view a, now, I mean, listen, some people stay very close to stage weight. You can do a 12 week prep if you stay very close to stage weight, no problem. But I would say for, for most people, that are at a pretty typical off-season body fat, usually six months to me is about the standard. I, I usually like to have about six months to work with and preferably try to be ready a little bit early 
um, because I'm a naturally very anxious person. So I don't like to, I don't like to have prep be like a photo finish, like, <laughs> you know, three, three days before stage time, you're, you know, you're still, still not quite there. I don't, I don't like that. So, I mean, for most people that can get away with it, I say, well, let's, let's try to make this happen over a six week period and try to be ready at least two or three weeks early. So taking all of this information, I'm just like wrapping my head back around, um, taking all this information that we've been covering, all the literature, all the methods, all the tools, all the information, circling back to the idea of metabolic adaptation, how long does it take to actually see this? Like how long of a deficit do we actually need to be in um, to create these metabolic or hormonal adaptations? Like how often do you even actually see these physiological changes occur and how long of a being in a deficit does it actually take for them to occur? That's a good question. Um, I don't, there's really two main drivers uh, of this kind of class of adaptations that we collectively call metabolic adaptation. The, The two primary things driving it, you know, it's not like if you accidentally were at like a 40 calorie a day deficit for three years, all of a sudden your metabolism is going to be like, bro, you've been pushing it. It's like, no, you know, it's nothing, right? It's like, it's in a deficit, but the time component is not really the big thing, in my opinion. I think it's more, how big is your current energy deficiency? So um, uh, the the term you'll see in the literature a lot with like uh, endurance athletes is like energy availability. Um, so basically, in, in the short term, how big is your deficit, basically? Um, and bigger deficits are going to predispose a more rapid onset and a more severe onset of these types of adaptations. Uh, another thing is, excuse me, another thing would be um, long-term lack of energy. And, and what that looks like is weight loss, you know, so the more that our short-term deficits become a, a long-term kind of sustained lack of energy, we, we know that that's the case because we start losing weight. You know, we start tapping into our storage. And so the, the two things that are really driving this are the acute energy availability, but also just the magnitude of weight loss. And I think a great example of that is the, uh, like the biggest loser study that, that kind of made, uh, made a lot of headlines a while back usually we don't see a tremendous adaptive reduction in resting energy expenditure. Um, Usually we see it in non-exercise activity, thermogenesis. The resting energy expenditure is often a little bit lower than we expect, but not by a ton. But we're talking about really atypical weight loss in that situation. Um, So so they they had a, a change in resting energy expenditure that was much larger than you would expect. Um, but it's kind of like a, an example of, you know, one, once we look at people that have lost really substantial amounts of weight over an extended period of time, it, it's really more the magnitude of weight loss than the fact that it took them so much time. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and as we come to the end of this diet phase, uh, what's your next step? Um, I mean, there's, you know, there's obviously the popular reverse diet and, and as of recently, I mean, relatively recently, 3DMJ popularized the recovery diet, which I think is great. 
um, for people who need a little bit quicker of a reverse diet, a little more aggressive approach to just get their hormones and get their metabolism working a little bit better, a little bit faster, a little bit healthier, quicker than reversing afterwards. Um, I'm just curious of where you stand. Do you tend to lean one way to the other towards reverse dieting or towards more towards the recovery diet? Or is it really just individual based on how hard the person dieted or how long the person like really individual physiology? Yeah, I'm going to plug my own work really quick. Go for it. Um, so I wrote an article. It might go up on the internet today. I don't know. It'll, within the next week or so, it should go up. But it's about metabolic adaptation. It's almost 22,000 words. Um, that's a lot of words. Most academic papers are like 3,000, um, just for a frame of reference. But I have a whole section on reverse dieting versus recovery dieting. And I don't really view them as two different approaches. I kind of just view it as a spectrum. I, I think they're more similar than they are different. And in that section of the article, I have kind of a chart. And it's like, here are reasons that you would increase your calories very quickly after a weight loss diet. And, and here are some of the characteristics that might make you want to go a little slower. So you could look at one as being recovery diet and one is reverse diet, fast versus slow. But there's a lot of um, factors to consider when deciding how quickly after the weight loss phase do I need to start increasing calories? How quickly should I be regaining fat? Um, there, there are several things that go into that. Where did you start with your weight? How lean did you get? Do you intend to maintain that leanness? Um, if you're a, a, a competitor... Um, if you're very early in your career and you probably need to put on another 20 pounds of lean mass, why in the world would you take a super slow reverse diet? You just spent, you know, six, nine months in a deficit and now you're going to spend 12 months getting back to the weight you started at and then maybe make some gains after that. Like you have to, you have to consider a lot of priorities. Um, so to answer the question directly, I've been uh, criticized a little bit in the past because I kind of view the world from the eyes of a bodybuilder. Well, most people aren't. And I think that's pretty cool. I think if you're not a bodybuilder, you're probably a lot more normal than a bodybuilder and you should probably be happy about that. Um, but if you're not a bodybuilder and you're doing this weight loss because you actually intend to maintain it, like you want this, this weight loss to be your new normal body weight, I think that's a place where a slower reverse diet makes sense, you know, because first of all, you shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't be at a disastrously low body fat where metabolic adaptation is absolutely, absolutely crushing you. Um, it, it could be tough if you've lost a ton of weight, you know, um, you know, you see these incredible transformations that are so admirable where people lose over a hundred pounds, over 200 pounds. That's a, a very special case. But for most people who just kind of looked in the mirror and said, nah, this isn't where I should be and lost 20 pounds, you could take a slow reverse diet and, and kind of nudge your caloric intake back to a more sustainable level, I think, without a ton of fat regain. And I think that makes a lot of sense and it's very sustainable. Now, let's say you, you're going for it. So like my last prep, I got a DEXA and it put me at 6% body fat. And then I lost 15 more pounds. Um, so like I was pushing hard. 
that's not sustainable. You need to gain some fat back pretty immediately. Um, especially someone like me, like I'm good at getting lean, but I need to put on more muscle. So it makes no sense for me to spend a lot of time below 8% body fat, where realistically, I'm not going to be putting on muscle. You know, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're that lean and overeating, your, your body knows better than you do. You're going to be putting on fat. I mean, in, unless there's some pharmacology involved. Um, I mean, steroids for anybody that doesn't, uh, so, so I think it depends on the circumstance, but if you want to maintain it, um, that would be a reason to go a little bit slower and take more of a reverse dieting approach. I think the 3DMJ guys are totally right. You know, if, if you're getting down to an unsustainable competition level, body fat level, get the hell out of a deficit immediately. There's no reason to, you know, add like three grams of carbs and then wait six weeks and see if you can add three more. You got to get out of a deficit. You got to get into a surplus, not just maintenance. And you got to start putting some fat back on because the more you delay that regain of the, you know, the first few pounds of fat, you're just delaying your recovery. Uh, your hormones aren't going to catch back up. You're going to feel like crap. Uh, if you want to recover and you should want to recover, you got you to gotta get back into a surplus and get some fat back on your body. Now, you don't have to go crazy. You know, back in the day when we were all doing 12-week preps, you, you know, the, the good old days. Mm -hmm. Back then, everybody would do a show and they would say, oh, man, I feel like my body's really ready to grow a lot of muscle because I've been in a deficit for a while. And they would stuff their face and they, they would just eat and eat and eat and train and train and train. They're like, this is great. Well, we looked at that in, in a study that, that I did with Bill Campbell down at USF. The first four to six weeks after a competition, like day one, you're going to gain a ton of water weight. The first four to six weeks, most of the weight you regain, it's, it's going to be a high proportion of fat. Um, that's just the way it goes. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's just something to be mindful of. And so because of that, I think it makes a lot more sense to you, you should want to regain fat, but you should want to do it in an appropriate time course where you don't say, I want all my weight gain to be muscle, but m more realistically, it'd be great if a higher percentage of this weight gain was actually lean tissue. And I think the way to do that is with a nice, you know, it doesn't have to be at like a snail's pace, but take a nice linear, linear approach. Don't forcefully like overfeed yourself till you feel sick. But have, a, have an appropriate surplus, work your way back up toward the weight that you actually wish to maintain long term, have good resistance training program in place during that, have adequate protein intake. Um, I, I think recovery diet for people that are getting really, really, really lean makes sense. The, the only exception, you know, I already talked about most people aren't getting to a disastrously low body fat and they can kind of take a slower approach and that's usually fine. The other, I shouldn't even bring it up because it's such a rare exception, but I feel like I'm obligated to at least mention it because it's there. If you're like a super elite bodybuilder, okay, and you compete frequently and you really don't intend to put on any more muscle mass. Or maybe you're a figure competitor, and if you put on any more, it would start hurting your places, right? So if lean mass is not an important part of your comp competitive strategy anymore, and getting increasingly leaner at each competition is, 
that is an instance where I could potentially see someone justifying a very slow reverse because at that point you are all in on your entire competitive strategy is focused on how do we absolutely maximize leanness. And in some cases, people might, some people compete way more frequently than I would ever recommend. But realistically, it's like you're in contest shape. What are you going to do? Go back to normal over the next three months and then do a three-month cut for your show in six months? That's another instance where you kind of reverse diet into a little above stage weight and then you kind of dip back down. So there's, there's all sorts of uh, factors to consider, but um, I think I've mentioned most of the factors. Man, I, re- I really wish I would have known this back in the day when I first did my first prep. And it's funny because I even remember emailing Eric Helms. This was five years ago now. I emailed Eric Helms just asking for some advice um, on what I should do post show and he gave me his advice and I ignored it and decided that I would be okay to go on a cruise and do an all you can eat all you can drink uh, week of debauchery right after the show Um, and I just gained all that weight back apparently I I wasn't as anabolic post show as they made me believe it wasn't it wasn't all muscle (laughs) it wasn't all muscle it it was not all muscle I guess my fat cells were uh, pretty anabolic as well. Yeah, fat cells are very – there's actually a lot of really crazy stuff. The fat cells change quite a bit um, as we lose fat. Um, they, they, Yeah, fat cells have a, a weird little life of their own. For the longest time in science, we just assumed that they were just these weird little storage vessels that didn't do anything. Uh, but physiologically, they adapt. And, yeah, they were probably very enthusiastic about your cruise. Um, <laughs> I think about that all the time. I mean, my first prep, um, I got help uh, from a, a local guy, um, and he, he did a very good job. Um, but still, it's like the first, the first, the whole beginning part of my lifting career, I had no idea what I was doing. You know, and even before that, I was a competitive wrestler. And man, the, the stuff we did to lose weight, it was mm-hmm. so stupid. You just wish you could go back and, and not be quite as stupid, but... Uh, rather than regret the past, then you just decide, oh, maybe I'll try to help clients uh, be less stupid since I can't go back in time. Exactly. And it's it's funny. It's I mean, there's a lot of people in our space um, that are producing content and coaching that that's why we do this. We've done plenty of stupid shit and we got passionate enough to educate ourselves and to help find better ways to do things so clients and other people can learn from us and not do as much stupid shit along their journey. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially like I got into lifting when I was 12. Yeah, that's There's, young. There is nobody that has done stupider things than me <laughs> in terms. Of, I mean, I've, I've, done, I've made every mistake you could possibly make because not only does everyone make mistakes early in their career, but when you start when you're 12, like uh, 12-year-olds have no idea what they're doing in any, any part of life, let alone in weightlifting and dieting, so... Yeah, whenever I work with a client, I'm like, don't worry about making mistakes because I've already made all of them. I've made enough for both of us. We'll put you in the right direction. So uh, a question that keeps coming up in my mind as we're talking about all this stuff is – so uh, the situation would be – and I get this question a lot from clients and from people who follow the podcast, listen to the podcast, who study this stuff or who have experienced this stuff by diving into it – here, the, the situation would be somebody who goes through a reverse diet, brings their calories up, um, 
with the goal of boosting their metabolism, quote unquote, building their metabolic capacity, let's say, and, and bringing their calories up so that when they diet next time, they can diet on more calories. Um, yet when they cut calories from their quote unquote new maintenance, it doesn't happen. Um, and they're not seeing the progress they thought they would on this new cut, on this second phase of cutting. And they keep cutting and keep cutting and keep cutting. And they have to get to the same point every time to lose fat. What's going on here? I guess I'm just curious. Is Have you noticed this as well where people maybe bring their calories up to a certain level as a new maintenance after reverse diet? And when they go to cut, things aren't moving as they expected after. Um, is that because they didn't maintain um, a higher caloric intake for long enough? They kind of just – reverse dieted and then just decided, okay, I brought my calories up. Now let's immediately bring them back down. Um, is this because everybody kind of has a threshold? This is something I've heard and, and I've kind of experienced and I'm curious about your thoughts, experience and mechanisms behind this. But like you just kind of have to get to that point to see results. Like you're going to need to dig towards this calorie limit for you personally because in our past experiences, every time we finally get to this caloric threshold, you finally start losing more weight. Um, I guess I'm just, just curious on your thoughts on this whole concept of what's going on here. Yeah. Um, you. That's a very good question. Um, and there's some really cool research in overfeeding. And, and that's essentially what we're doing with a reverse diet is we are very cautiously overfeeding people or like a diet breaker. Well, not a diet break, but a, a, a reverse diet. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we, we've kind of talked about metabolic adaptation in the sense that as you induce a caloric deficit, energy expenditure often drops a little bit. Um, that can also happen in the other direction. And it's, it's not like one of those things where like coaches whisper about their observations. Like this is in the literature in very well done studies. And so what we'll see is that as we take a person who's at their normal body weight, very, um, very typical physiological status, um, and we start overfeeding them a little bit, what we'll see is that their energy expenditure will start to go up a little bit to match this kind of mismatch in calories. They'll kind of rise to the occasion and, and burn a little bit more energy throughout the day to try to essentially maintain their, their normal body weight a little bit. Um, now, some people do this more than others. Um, and the study actually highlighted that because it was a pretty notable discrepancy between people who really ramp up their energy expenditure and people who don't. Now, the people who don't, those are the people that we all know. And some of us are those people who, when we overeat, we gain weight really easily. Uh, now, the people who, as you incrementally overfeed them, their energy expenditure goes up and up and up. There are people that they're like, I'm telling you, I, I really am eating a lot. I just can't gain the weight. It's, it's a real thing. Um, and I don't know if one or the other is better or worse. Like I, I know a ton of people who are miserable because they struggle to gain weight and they really want to gain weight. I know a lot of people that are miserable because every time they touch a calorically dense food, they gain four and a half pounds, you know? Um, so I, I don't know which one's best and which one's worse. And it's just a thing that exists that some people, they have an adaptive increase in energy expenditure when you overfeed them. 
And uh, so what's happening is to directly address your question, you've got a person who's eating at a maintenance level. They start increasing their calories a little bit. They have an adaptive increase in energy expenditure to match that and their weight doesn't change, but they are eating more. When they start crawling those calories back down to reintroduce the deficit, all they're doing is unadapting from that adaptive increase in energy expenditure. So I'm of the opinion that that's what's happening, that you're just undoing this weird little adaptation that's causing them to, to defend their body weight. And instead of increasing their energy expenditure to match that caloric intake, now they're back where they belong and they're just at their normal energy expenditure. So Eric Helms and I wrote a, an article uh, in 2014 that actually kind of touched on that. And the idea was when, and this actually ties into the first question you asked me, why does the starvation thing seem such like such a big effect? When we look at somebody who starts a weight loss diet, especially in the bodybuilding world, they're probably coming off of a bulk, like an intentional overfeeding period. And what we might see is that when they, when they go from bulking to cutting, they're overfeeding and their energy expenditures may be 10% higher than it should be. And then at the end of their diet, it might be maybe 15% lower than it should be based on their body weight. So what we're seeing is a compounded effect where they, are, they think that their maintenance calories are actually probably about 10% higher than they should be. Whereas if we remove those extra calories, they would probably maintain their weight there. So instead of being a, a 10% change one way and a 15% the other, what they see is a 25% change. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'm curious about NEAT in this whole thing too. Is there, is there any merit? Do you put any merit into NEAT and lifestyle movement and stuff like that? Um, do you have clients track that? It, like, Is there any reason to... Um, I think it was Lane Norton. He put out this thing that it showed like a slideshow of his like vlog series through a prep and you watched him talk slower and move less and even blink slower <laughs> throughout the prep because um, neat goes down. Do you have people track that? Like let's track your neat before the prep and let's try to maintain that. Um, how much you stand, how much you walk, or is, is that just adding to people's stress? Like, is that even worth it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Eric and I, Eric Helms and I, we were writing that article in 2014 and this came up and I had, uh, I always thought of myself as a funny guy. So I had some smart ass joke in there where I was like, well, you know, aside from fidgeting all the time, not much you can do. And, and Eric is like, <laughs> I never know when he's going to be serious or not with me, but he was like, Eric, I think people are going to take that seriously. And I think you're going to cause them a lot of stress. And so I was like, fine, take it out. So, um, no, definitely don't sit around and try to fidget all day to say like, well, it's good for my knee because you're going to drive yourself insane. Um, it's a client to client thing. It depends who you're working with. Um, if it's a person who's very prone to taking things to an extreme, if it's a kind of higher stress individual who's going to have a lot of anxiety about it, don't bother just say, Hey, we're, we'll, we'll plan around it. We'll just know it'll be there, this reduction in need and we'll plan around it. No big deal. If it's somebody who's, it's not going to bother them and they're pretty chill. You can give, 
loose recommendations. Just things like, hey, um, you know, you work at a desk all day, every hour, get up and walk around the hallway and, and sit back down. You know, I'm kind of like the stuff they're pushing in a lot of like public health papers lately of like, try not to be sedentary for eight straight hours, like try to get up and move a little bit and get back. It's not a workout. It's just moving and doing a thing. So you could say like, hey, every hour, get up and take a two minute walk around the, the break room. Um, you could also say, hey, try to get 10,000 steps a day, 15,000 steps a day. Um, those are very easy things, but I, I really wouldn't, I wouldn't push any harder than that. Because I mean, it's, I mean, it's even things like posture. You slouch in your chair more when you're, when you're in prep. Uh, yeah, there's so many aspects of energy expenditure that we simply can't, um, can't manage and can't overcome. And a big part of being, it, talk to somebody like, uh, like Jeff Alberts, who's been a successful bodybuilder for years and years and years. The thing he always seems to stress like every time you write something it's like man the stuff that's not big that's just there to stress you out you got to just let that stuff go you know there's other places we can make up for those calories yeah totally no I had him on the podcast as well and it was really informative and just cool to have somebody so well experienced uh trying to kind of go over that just kind of ease your mind because there's just so much out there that can confuse people can overwhelm people and just make them think all these little things are going to make a difference. So it's cool to have somebody like him talk about it. Yeah. I, I will say like, I haven't been in, in the bodybuilding game that long. I did my first prep in 2011, did a couple shows in 2013 and then a couple shows in 2017. And man, I can't believe it's already been almost two years. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> but every time you do it, it gets easier, you know, like, and that, I think that's why Jeff is so chill about it. And so cool is because the first few times you, you, you stress over every detail, you panic about everything. There's so many unknowns. Once you do it a few times, it gets easier and easier and easier. And it's to the point I, I heard somebody, somebody made a kind of mean video about me the other day, but, uh, they, they were like saying that I shouldn't promote bodybuilding because it gives everybody like eating disorders and stuff. I don't think there's, I don't think that's how eating disorders work, but they're saying I should like get therapy to get help for my body image issues. And like, the thing that's crazy is like, the more I do bodybuilding, the more I understand the process and it feels like second nature in the off season, I almost get a little bit too comfortable, not stressing about it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I kind of, I, I kind of look like crap right now and it doesn't affect my happiness at all. Cause I know that when I want to get in the best shape of my life again, I have full autonomy over that. I know how to do it. I've done it many times before. And the next time I prep, it'll probably be the best I've ever looked because you, you learn more as you go. You don't lose it, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, so if anything, that experience almost kind of, I need to remind myself like, yeah, yeah, you know how to do it, but you probably ought to like get back and <laughs> like the dissertation was an easy excuse to be like, eh, fitness isn't the top priority. It's more about science and, you know, doing a research, getting out other content, but now it's time to be like, all right, but you, you, you are a fitness person. So you should probably be 
kind of fit. Yeah, we're we're uh, we're running out on time, so I gotta let you go here. But man, I appreciate you coming on, and I appreciate you providing so much value and so much information. There's gonna be so many things that people can take away from this podcast. Um, so I'm really excited that uh, we were able to do that, and, and I'm sh- assuming you're. Uh, God awful long, um, which I can actually can't wait to read. Um, article on metabolic adaptation is going to be live by the time this airs, I assume. So, um, so I can link that in the show notes. Where is that going to be? Is it going to be free? What's where can people find that article? Because I think that's going to take everything we talked about and everything everybody else talks about with metabolic adaptation and put it in one central place, which is going to be awesome. Yeah, it's um, it's totally free. Uh, I think it'll, I hope it'll go out maybe tonight, but it should be up by the time this podcast goes up. It'll be at strongerbyscience.com. Um, it'll be huge. It's a three part article that I'm, I'm, I think it'll all be smushed into one big <laughs> document. And, uh, I wrote it to be that way. So I'm hoping it'll, it'll pan out like that, but yeah, it'll be totally free. Strongerbyscience.com. Check it out. It's going to take some time, but it's all good stuff. And leave comments because Greg and I spend a lot of time on the articles we write on the website. I, I, we pretty much every comment gets answered. You know, there's a little comment section under every article. And yeah, we, we try to go in and answer every question that's posted there. So check out the article. Hope you like it. Um, but yeah, if you ever want to get in touch with me, um, uh, strongerbyscience.com is the website. I have a Facebook and, and Twitter names, just Eric Trexler. And then on Instagram, I am, uh, at Trexler fitness. And those are kind of the main places where you can, uh, yell at me and tell me how much you hate my most recent article. <laughs> I love it, man. Thank you so much once again. And uh, I'm going to link all of that in the show notes so people can check out all your work, all your content. Um, it's super helpful. And, and dude, seriously, I, I really do appreciate you taking the time to, to sit here and talk with me on, uh, on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. Had a good time. <laughs>